You're listening to a teaching series by Cross Culture Church of Christ. If you'd like any more information about our church, head to crossculture.net.au. Feel free to share this podcast with others, but please don't alter the content in any way. We hope you enjoy it. It's nearly 12 months since we uh, planned our preaching program for 2020 and uh, we knew nothing of the things that would happen between uh, then and now Uh, and there's been so much happening. Uh, The drought became so much more severe, the bushfires, the worst uh, for decades, the pandemic that so far has taken the lives of uh, 428,000 people and more recently uh, the, the pain and suffering that's uh, caused by racism. Uh, and if we're really honest, racism, it's in uh, every one of us. The Apostle Paul uh, was right when he said, we live in a world that's groaning. For many of us, this is uh, intensely personal as we grapple with the loss of loved ones or loss of health uh, or loss of uh, relationships. Uh, it's, it can really bite into us. And the list of those things, of course, is as endless as the suffering Uh, for Janet and me. uh, Recently, we've had to face uh, the possibility, not the possibility, the real possibility of uh, major surgery for Janet. Uh, She has a tumour in her sinus. Uh, Thankfully, it's benign. Uh, But as we've gone into the process of dealing with this, uh, she's going to have to have a 10-hour operation, quite complicated surgery. It'll be followed by a a 12-month recovery period. And of course, this has caused us to be thinking uh, about our life, our health, our relationships, our ministry, our family. A whole lot of things flood into our minds. And uh, we've been, this book of Job has certainly uh, got our attention all over again uh, as we go into our second week. I've been learning all over again if and when it's appropriate to say something and uh, if and when and what is helpful to say uh, when people are suffering. Often when we're faced with uh, someone suffering intensely, uh, we, our re- response is to say, I don't know what to say. And yet in spite of that and knowing that, <laughs> we do barge in and say something uh, and often it's not helpful um, or sometimes actually we avoid them. But sometimes by either of those responses, we can add to their pain and cause them more suffering. Now, sometimes people have the courage to tell us that that's what's happened. I remember telling, uh, talking to my dad after he'd been diagnosed with prostate cancer in his 70s. And uh, I brought out that well-worn truth, apparently, uh, that most people who get prostate cancer die with it rather than of it. Uh, My father had the courage to say, Sam, somehow that doesn't help. (laughs) And uh, it's good, actually, when people give us that kind of feedback. I've come across people throughout my ministry who have suffered intensely, but their suffering has been even more intense um, by what Christian friends have said to them. I remember a girl who had epilepsy and she'd been told by her Christian friends, that she had a demon. And as she 
spoke with me in the psychiatric ward of the hospital. She, she poured out how much what these Christian friends had said to her had deepened and intensified her pain. I've met others who have been told that what they're suffering is a result of their sin or the result of some sort of sinful trend in their family. Some forebearer or other has done something wrong that has caused all this suffering. These words can be terribly damaging. And the question is, how can we respond wisely to friends, to family, to colleagues, to people we meet who are suffering? I think this is hard for those of us who follow Jesus uh, because we believe in the word of the good news uh, and we have, ourselves have received great comfort uh, from the word of the gospel and uh, we want others to know that peace and comfort as well. So we need to work out how can we respond to people's pain and suffering in such a way that it helps them uh, to know God's peace and God's comfort for themselves. So in this ancient book of Job, God has uh, given us help in that. Uh, last week, we looked at the dialogue between God and Satan uh, regarding Job, an ancient believer in God. Uh, God gives Satan permission uh, to touch everything that Job has, uh, but not him. And what follows is a terrible account of extreme suffering to ha happening to a good person. You've probably heard of Murphy's Law. If anything can go wrong, it will. Well, Job is an example of that. Everything went wrong. He loses everything, his livestock, and he has lots of them, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 1,000 oxen, 500 donkeys, and so on. He loses his seven sons and his three daughters. But that's just stage one. Uh, in chapter two, there's a further conversation between God and Satan in which God draws attention uh, to the fact that Job has maintained his faith and integrity in spite of all Satan's provocations uh, without reason. You can read about that in chapter 2, verse 3. In stage 2, uh, Satan is allowed to attack Job personally, uh, but to spare his life. He's inflicted with a terrible skin infection or boils, and he's reduced to sitting in ashes, scraping the sores with a broken piece of pottery. And his last remaining family member, his wife, advises him to curse God and die. Now Job is utterly alone in his suffering. And yet his response is one of total trust in God. He says to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? And the comment is, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Poor Job. Remember, he doesn't have the benefit of knowing these conversations that are going on between God and Satan. Uh, he's not aware uh, of God's intentions. All he knows is that God is still in control of all this. And he knows that because he trusts God. Friends, how can we put this together? How can God and Satan be having a conversation about inflicting a human being with such extreme suffering? Doesn't it make God complicit uh, in the evil that's happening? John Calvin makes a very helpful observation in looking at what happened to Job. Uh, in the incident where the Chaldeans come over the hill, they raid Job's farm 
and they had killed the servants, then they take off with his 3,000 camels. Uh, Calvin says that there are three parties involved in what happens to Job. To Job, it's just one action. But there are three parties involved. There's God, there's Satan, and there's the Chaldeans. And these three parties are differentiated by their motives. Uh, the Chaldeans, they're greedy. They just want camels. They steal. Satan, uh, he wants Job to abandon his trust in God. His motive is destruction. And God wants Job, Job to stay strong in his faith. God's motive is to build him up and keep him strong. So next, Job is visited by three friends in the chapters that follow. And I want us to look at, at what unfolds. Firstly, let's think about the wisdom of silence. These three friends who hear about Job's suffering are very disturbed. You can read about it in chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. We don't know who they are, but they are from three different nations. They know each other and they know Job. Well, who wouldn't know Job? He's the greatest man in the East. And this is like an international delegation who get together to go uh, by appointment and comfort Job. Uh, that's in verse 11. These three friends heard all this evil that had come upon him. They came each from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, Zophar, the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. So they're concerned. And they don't just sit in their own country and say, oh, poor old Job, but never mind. Uh, the people of us will look after him. Or worse, uh, maybe they could have thought, well, great, that'll weaken the Uzites and our nations will be stronger in comparison. But no, uh, they go, they make arrangements and they go together to bring comfort to Job. Verse 12 tells us that when they get there, uh, they don't recognise him. It's like when you go to visit someone in hospital who's had a major operation uh, or a car accident or chemotherapy and they've got tubes running out of every part of their body and you wonder if it's the same person. Uh, it can be very shocking, can't it? And uh, in this case, there's no nurse or doctor to prepare these three and say, look, you know, you may not recognise him, this or that or the other. It's just in their face and they are so traumatised that they weep and wail and tear their robes and throw dust over themselves. Uh, these are all signs of deep grief. It seems to them that their friend is as good as dead. They have two reactions in the beginning. Firstly, silence. In verse 13, they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights and no one spoke a word to him for they saw that his suffering was very great. Even though these guys are big wigs in their own country, they sit on the ground with Job in his pain and suffering. Our friends, we often have a very negative view of Job's comforters. In fact, it's found its way into our dictionaries. We call people, you're a Job's comforter. Here's a definition from an online dictionary. A Job's comforter is a person who unwittingly or maliciously depresses or discourages someone while attempting to be consoling. But actually, these three friends, they start very well, don't they? 
and they do something that probably none of us have ever done. They sit for seven days and seven nights with Job in deep sympathy without saying a word. Friends, if you talk with people who have been through deep and intense suffering and pain, this is one of the things they actually find most helpful, that people just are with them in their grief. Somehow that communicates to them that they really care. A friend of ours who went through a painful marriage breakup said to us one of the most helpful things that happened to him in the early stages was a friend who just rang up and said, I'm bringing some pizzas around. Let's have dinner together and let's watch a movie. And he said that was very, very helpful to him. Uh, some cultures recognise this sitting with people in grief. In the village that we used to live in, if someone dies, uh, you go to their house and you sit with the family, even if you don't know them. Just sit and be with them and sympathise with them in their grief. Share our common humanity and our common frailty. And you wait until the wailing stops and the bereaved person is ready to speak. And until then, you sit in silence. And Job's friends do this. Uh, by the way, friends, it, it, this is what Jesus wanted, isn't it? Uh, when he was in his moment of great need in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he's facing the horror of the cross, and he says these words, he says to his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. That's what the Son of God wanted in his moment of deep distress. So firstly, silence. Secondly, they listen. At the end of the seven days and seven nights, Job speaks. Until now, the three friends haven't spoken. And you can read what he says in chapter 3. He really unloads. He is so down. He curses the day of his birth. Notice here, he doesn't curse God as Satan said he would. He wishes that God had never let him be born. This is not an unusual cry from someone in extreme suffering. Why would God let someone be born to bear such pain? is the question that comes up. To not be born seems better. Now notice here, friends, that Job is someone who trusts God. Probably more than you and you or I have ever been called upon to trust God. His statements of trust are mind-blowing. When his, all his stuff is gone, he's lost everything, and his health is gone to within an inch of his life, and his wife says to him, curse God and die, he says, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? He recognises the sovereignty of God and that, that what God has dished up, uh, he needs to accept as somebody who trusts in God. But please notice that this does not bulletproof him from feeling the pain of his loss. Uh, these feelings are real and they naturally come to us in extremity. Now, some of the hardest times for us on the mission field were when we got sick. Usually it was dysentery or our old friend Giardia. Uh, we felt wretched and useless. And we were far away from our support structures. Family, Christian friends who might help to mind the kids or drop a meal off or 
or find us some good medical help or help us to find uh, where we could get medicines that uh, we could be sure weren't adulterated. And at those times, the thought often came and naturally came, what's the use of being here, uh, being a burden on everyone else? And I can't do what I came here to do. At least if I was out of here, I wouldn't be holding other people back uh, from doing what God has called them to do. This is a fraction, I guess, of what Job was thinking. What we were dealing with was low level compared to what he was dealing with. But his suffering and feeling of uselessness and abandonment is very deep and very real. And it's catastrophic. And it's no use saying that he shouldn't be feeling that way. The fact is that he is feeling that way. And so are some of your friends and some of my friends. Uh, we need to listen to their pain. Maybe their language is a bit fruity sometimes and harsh, but we actually need to listen to the pain uh, that's behind what they're saying. This is what Paul talks about when he says, we need to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So Job's friends listened. The next 35 chapters of Job are speeches of the three friends and Job. And it's very hard, actually, to trace a logical flow to the ideas. As there's so much disconnection between what the friends say and what Job says. They search for a reason for his suffering. Job searches for his connection with God, who he trusts. It's armchair versus wheelchair, as Devon said last week. And it's reflected in the language. The friends uh, talk to Job about God. Sometimes Job answers them, but mostly in his speeches, he's talking to God. Francis Anderson, who wrote a very good commentary on Job, and by the way, he died last week, uh, at the age of 90-something. He says this, Job's friends talk about God. Job talks to God. And Job is in good company there. The Bible is full of people crying out to God uh, in their distress. The writers of Psalms do it. Jeremiah does it. Jesus does it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Addresses God directly. So Job's comforters sit in silence and they listen. Two great things to do, but things go downhill from here. And the second point, the folly of blaming. The first of the three friends to speak is Eliphaz. He begins gently enough in chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. He reminds Job of his confidence in God and how he himself has helped others who were becoming impatient. But now the roles are reversed, he says, and Job is impatient. And Eliphaz says, I'm going to give you some advice. Eliphaz speaks in generalities. He says in verse 8, As I have seen those who plough iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Basically, you reap what you sow. Now, this is good biblical truth, isn't it? It's a good biblical principle. But can you apply it the other way around? That if someone has reaped trouble, that they must have sown it. Well, the answer to that is not necessarily so. Yes, some suffering is caused by sin. 
Having an accident when you're driving at 160 k's on a road that's designed to be driven at 80 k's is an example. A consuming toxic substance is another example. Picking a fight with someone and uh, getting a broken nose or ruining a relationship or both is another example. And yes, there's some suffering that's caused by other people's sin. But there's a whole lot of suffering that we can't explain and that we mustn't explain in terms of sin to the person suffering. If you have weeds in your garden, it may be because you planted them. It may be because someone threw a handful of weed seeds over the fence. Or it may be just that you're living in a broken world, a world because of sin, weeds grow in your garden. What Eliphaz says actually is quite cruel because he speaks in generalities. What is poor Job supposed to do with this? As well as scraping the terrible sores that covered his body from head to toe, he now has to sift through his life searching for the specific sin that has caused all this. Friends, it's really helpful to connect suffering to sin. In my experience, that's where people who suffer go anyway. And when we hear of others suffering, it's often where we go as well. The girl who was raped, where was she? What time of day was it? What was she wearing? Or George Floyd, the poor Afro-American who was slowly murdered a few weeks back. Now people ask, was he a good guy or a bad guy? And probably the answer to that is plenty of both like you and me. But to ask that question, it's as if it's okay for him to get suffocated if he's a bad guy. And it's not okay if he's a good guy. It's the same thing, isn't it? It's blaming him for his suffering. We need to be very careful and very gracious about how we respond in these circumstances. Especially to people who are feeling like their lives don't matter. And they're living in fear of being picked on. That somehow it doesn't help to tell them that all lives matter. Of course, as people who believe that everybody is created in, in the image of God and is very precious, we know that that's true. But what it communicates to the person who thinks their life doesn't matter is that we don't want to listen to their pain. It's much the same if we say to our friend who has uh, just had a cancer diagnosis that one in two Australians get cancer by the time they're 85 year old. It's true, but it's not helpful. It doesn't help them in their pain. Bildad uh, in chapter 8 is the next friend to speak and he ramps it up a bit on Job, more than a bit. In chapter 8 verse 2 he says, How long will you say these things? And the words of your mouth will be a great wind. Uh, Job, you're a windbag, is basically what Bildad says to him. That's the thrust of his intro. And then he goes on to take the sin angle one step further and speaks about the justice of God. Does God pervert justice in verse 3? Does the Almighty pervert the right? God is a just God and where there is sin, he will repay it. This is what Bildad is saying. Again, it's true enough. But where's the specific connection between God's justice and what Job's suffering here and now? What sin is God avenging? Well, Bildad has a stab at answering that question in verse 4. 
If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. This must have been so hurtful for Job. He had anticipated this very thing, that his kids might sin. And he regularly consecrated them, all ten of them, and got up early in the morning and made sacrifices for each one of his kids, not once but continually, we're told in chapter 1, verse 5. How much salt can these guys rub into Job's wounds? Well, more, apparently, in verse 5. If you'll seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you're pure and upright, surely, then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. Our Bildad presumes to speak on behalf of God that if Job cleans up his life, God will get up off the couch and restore him. Curiously, in verse 7, he says, uh, what eventually happens to Job? Though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. That is what happens as Job is restored, but it's not for the reason that Bildad gives. In the end, it's God's good pleasure to restore Job. It's God's mercy. And curiously, it's Job's mercy that the three friends' sins get atoned for as he mediates for them in a way that God gives him to do. Friends, we must be extremely careful, presuming to pontificate on how God's justice is going to pan out in an individual's life. That's the mistake that these guys make. Did you notice what's missing in their advice to Job? They're very strong on God's holiness and God's justice, but they're very weak on his grace. That the holy and just God is also a gracious God, one who forgives and gives us what we don't deserve. And of course, that is fully expounded uh, in the person and in the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Friends, what this shows us, I think, is the inadequacy of human wisdom. Human wisdom is very inadequate. If you, like me, you can see yourself in Eliphaz and Bildad. If we haven't said those kinds of things to hurting people, we've probably thought them. It helps us to see that our wisdom is flawed and that we can so easily misapply the wisdom of God. So what to do? Well, I want to finish with four things that we can do as friends of people we know who are suffering. Two things that the friends did and two things that they should have done. Firstly, be with them in their pain, uh, as these friends did. Sit with them. Empathise with them. Secondly, listen to them. Let them say what's truly going on inside. This part of it will probably not happen if you don't do the first part, if you don't sit with them. Let them say it, no matter how awful it is. Listen to them. And friends, thirdly, when it's appropriate, remind them of God's love and grace. Point them to Jesus who understands our suffering better than anyone because he himself suffered. Remind them when it's appropriate that he will finally put everything right, that there will be no more crying or pain and tears when he winds everything up. 
read scripture with them. Give them God's wisdom and let God speak into their pain. Now, friends, we need to be really wise about how we do this. A friend of ours who lost her husband said when, when we asked her what was helpful, what was unhelpful in the way people comforted you. And she said this. She said, I love Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. But she said, the week after my husband has suddenly died is not the right time to hear it. She said, there came a time when I could hear that, but it wasn't the week after he died. So remind them of God's love and grace. And fourthly, talk to God with them and for them. Often people who are suffering find it really hard to pray. And friends, offer to pray with them and certainly pray for them that they might know God's goodness and faithfulness in their pain and suffering or through their pain and suffering. Friends, let's take some time to ponder on this, to examine our own hearts uh, and to ask for God's help. Many of us are probably going through things right now where we're feeling intense pain. Uh, friends, let's reach out to our great God, uh, the one who loved us so much that he gave his son to die, suffer and die for us. Let's take time to respond and then I'll lead us in prayer. Lord, we ask for your help. We realize that we've not often helped the people around us who are suffering. Uh, forgive us that we sometimes ignore them or say things that add to their pain. Uh, please help us to trust you in our own suffering. And please give us your wisdom as we reach out to others who are suffering. Give us the love and humility uh, to help bear their burdens and so fulfill your good purposes. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Saviour. Amen. Thank you.